You can go ahead and open up to 1 Thessalonians. I'm glad to be back here. As was mentioned, I was here for the missions conference back in the spring. And the thing that I remember about this church and your service is that the worship is very celebratory. I love that, right? If the gospel has made a difference in our lives, if we've received the love and forgiveness of Jesus, then we should have some joy about that. And I love that you guys celebrate that. If you're in this room and you do not know the love and forgiveness of Jesus, just understand that there is a great thing that God offers to you, and that is salvation through his son, Jesus. And so we're going to celebrate some of that this morning. But again, I just want to say thank you for having me. I want to thank Pastor Nations for the invitation. Um, I know he's enjoying his vacation, but it's a blessing to be here um, as he's away this week. As was mentioned earlier, I am the Collegiate Ministries Director for the Florida Baptist in the Tampa area, which would include Lakeland and and Tampa and some areas on the outskirts there. And, and we are uh, in the midst of conversations of starting some things down in Bradenton. There's a lot of opportunity here with colleges and students that are enrolling for uh, education that would prepare them for the rest of their lives. There's an opportunity there to share the gospel. And so we want to be effective in that and reaching the next generation. And I know that you guys can be a great partner in that. And, and really, my work is an extension of what you are already doing here in the local church. Uh, not only are you guys blessing us through the Florida Baptist and your generous giving, but also with people and, and resources. And so I want to say thank you. You don't realize the impact. I've said before to our college students that probably the greatest impact that you'll have in this life, you really won't know about until you get to eternity. And so there are things happening that, that really you, you don't even, you're not even aware of. And so hopefully I can share some stories this morning. But I also want to tell you it's a good year at USF. That's primarily where I spend my time. My office is there on, on the campus there. And I think I see a Go Bulls back there. That's right. If anybody was watching yesterday, we had a big win, right? That's right. We look pretty good. So I was excited about that. And uh, not only USF, I'm originally from Pennsylvania. Anybody here from Pennsylvania? I just, wow, look at those hands. That's awesome. So not only am I a USF fan, I am also a Penn State fan. Um, grew up uh, rooting for Penn State, and that's hard for me to say. If you follow college football at all, or if you're familiar with the sports world, uh, we kind of had a big stain against us because of some things that had happened probably about seven or eight years ago. And so just to set up where we're going this morning, I want to share a little bit about that. I'm not going to go into details, but we had an assistant coach at Penn State that committed some heinous crimes. And uh, it was found out about what had happened. And so um, after some investigation, they uh, obviously he was arrested and he's, he's now in prison. But the question became this. This is the question that everybody was asking. How much did Coach Paterno know? So if you know college football, you know the name Paterno. If you don't know college football, I'll just let you know that Joe Paterno is a legend. Um, he has the most wins of any college football coach. Uh, he, he was considered a, they, his nickname, they would call him a beacon of integrity, right? So he was known not just for his wins on the field, but also his successes in the classrooms that his students and his athletes were graduating. And so this man who stood with such integrity, the question was, well, how much did he know? And as they unfolded the investigation, what came to light was that he may have known a little bit. We don't know the extent of everything that he knew. But it was enough that Penn State released him from the football program. This guy that had coached there for nearly 60 years uh, was just a, a legend there. Now, Joe Paterno would lose his life about three months after he was released from the school. And towards the end of his life, he was sitting down with his biographer, 
Um, and they're having a conversation, and the biographer is, is just talking about how Joe looked, and this was just a few days before he passed, and Joe looked at his biographer, and he said, what do you think of all of this? And his biographer knew what he was talking about, not what they were doing that day, and not just his wins, but specifically the investigation and, and all of that. And his biographer said, well, Joe, I've known you for a long time. You're a great guy, and I think that a man in your position with the responsibility that you hold as the coach and all of this, he said, I think you should have done more. And Joe Paterno's response was this, just six words. He said, I wish I would have done more. I wish I would have done more. And Joe would repeat that at different times um, towards the end of his life. He was interviewed multiple times, but his thing that he kept coming back to was, I wish I had done more. Now, hopefully none of us find ourselves in a position like that, right, where we're under investigation and all of these other things. But if we're being honest, most everybody in this room has been in a relationship or maybe an occupation or maybe um, a point in your life or a ministry in church or whatever it may be where you've been able to look back and you've said, you know, I, I wish I would have done more there. I wish I would have done that. And not that we want to live a life of regret, but we have to ask ourselves the question, are we doing enough with what God has given us? So in, in light of that, I want you to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, because Paul, who pens this letter, says something astonishing at the beginning, just the first verse of chapter 2. He says this, for you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. That word vain is used in Philippians 2, the, the, the verb form is used in Philippians 2 when it talks about Jesus emptying himself as he came to this earth. The, the word really has to do with being void of something, it's, it's being empty, there's no value there to the substance or whatever, and what Paul is saying is that my time was not wasted. In other words, I, I'm can look back on my time, and that's what he's doing in this letter, is he's recounting his time in Thessalonica, and he's just reminding them of his time there and, and the encounters that they had and the life change that God produced. And he says, you know that my time was not wasted. It wasn't in vain. Now think about that. That's the Apostle Paul writing this, right? The, the great champion of the New Testament, a great champion of the early church who who promoted the growth of the church, who advanced the gospel into some hard places. And the implication that he says here is, is really that he could have wasted his time. But he said, I, I didn't, and you know that I didn't. So if the apostle Paul could possibly have wasted his time, we are all in danger of that as well. And, and again, I, I think about the influence that each of us will have, and there are things that, that we're a part of, and we, we never know the extent to which God will use some of those things. But God calls us to be faithful, and God calls us to use our positions and our, our roles and our relationships to advance his gospel. So what I want to do this morning is I want to look through the rest of that chapter, at least the first 12 verses, and I just want to look at Paul's story. Why could he say that he didn't waste his time? And, and this relates to all of us when we think about where God has us. It relates to me as I think about my role on a college campus and, and among young people, but each of you plays a role in that too, you know, in the church and, and raising up the next generation of faith. Are, are you being faithful with where God has placed you? This is very simple what Paul tells us, but I want to give you a couple of things, the reason why Paul could say, I didn't waste my time. So here's the first thing, share the gospel. 
share the gospel. Paul shared the gospel. He could say he didn't waste his time because the gospel was shared, right? So if you go back to Acts 17, this isn't going to be on the screens. If you want to turn back, you can. I'm just going to read two verses. This is the story of him going to Thessalonica, this city. And he talks, and, and Luke is recording this, and Luke talks about what Paul did when he showed up to the city. So he did what he usually does. In verse 2 of chapter 17, it says, And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he's, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And so Paul showed up, to Thessalonica, he goes to the synagogue, he begins reasoning with people from the Old Testament, and he's saying, look, not only did the Messiah have to suffer and die and be raised again, but that Messiah has come, his name was Jesus. He's telling us the good news, which is the gospel, that God, despite our sins, sent his son Jesus to stand in our place, to be a sacrifice for our sins, and to bear the penalty that we all deserve. And yet, here's the great news that Jesus, three days later, raised from the dead. Like, that's pretty miraculous, right? That this man who claimed to be God, performed miracles like God, taught with the authority of God, was in a grave, he was dead, and then three days later, he's alive! That's a miracle, right? And so Paul is sharing this in Thessalonica, and here's what happened. People got saved. People start giving their lives to Jesus. They're believing the message, not everybody, but a lot of people, to the point that this is what happens in the city. People are changing their way of life. They're changing the way they spend their money. They're changing their habits. They're changing their relationships. And this is what happens in the city. The city officials become so upset with the move of the gospel that they go and grab a man named Jason. At this point, Paul had left with his companion. He's no longer there. And so they grab a man named Jason who was housing Christians. He just had him in in his house. And they drag him before the magistrate and the city officials, and they say, look, the people that have been turning the world upside down, they're here in our city, and this man is housing them. In other words, look, there is such a change happening in our city, and this man's allowing it to happen. There was such a change in, in in the movement of the city that they are willing to persecute people who are simply just housing the ones who brought the message. Radical transformation is happening because Paul shared the gospel. Things happen when you share the gospel. People get saved. Not everybody, right? I'm I'm rejoicing over the work of college ministry in the state of Florida. In the last couple of weeks, I'm hearing reports from people all over the state of people coming to know Jesus as their Savior. And again, that's an extension of what you guys do here. And just at USF alone, we've had seven students give their lives to Jesus. In fact, today we have four students getting baptized at different churches. God is doing a great work, but I am one person. You know, our team is just one team, and there is a vast amount of opportunity. In fact, at USF, there's about 40,000 students that attend that school. They say there are about a million college students in the state of Florida. Now, we have a large task ahead of us in sharing the gospel, but it's not going to be one person. It's not going to be a couple of people. It's going to be the church. You know, it's going to be the church sharing the gospel in your local context with people that you come in contact with at church and in your community. And what happens when you share the gospel is that people get saved. Not everybody, right? Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he says, I've become all things to all people that what? That I may win some. 
right? Not, not all, not everybody's going to receive the gospel, but, but when we share the gospel, people come to faith. And he says, I was there and I shared the gospel and people got saved. My first encounter with the Tampa Bay area, so I told you I'm from Pennsylvania, I came down to visit some family that were living in Bradenton and they knew that I had a favorite athlete. And so they were like, what an opportunity to take him to go see his favorite athlete since he plays now in Tampa Bay. And so I went to go watch a Rays game with my uncle. Uh, one summer, I was probably just out of middle school, entering high school, and I wanted to go see my favorite player, Fred McGriff. All right, I don't know if y'all remember Fred McGriff. He was a first baseman. They called him the crime dog. And, uh, and he was towards the end of his career when he went to Tampa. And so I had never gotten to see him play before. He played in Atlanta and all these different areas, not in Pennsylvania. And so my uncle is, I'm gonna take Nathan to the game. And so we travel up to the stadium, Tropicana Field at the time. And, and, and we go and we sit there and, and the starting lineup is on the Jumbotron. And Fred McGriff's name is not on the Jumbotron. So we show up to watch my favorite player play, and he's not even playing. So this is a, a disappointment, but it's still a baseball game. I'm a sports fan. I wanted to watch the game. And so we watch the game, and, and it's now, you know, five innings, six innings, seven innings, eight innings. It gets to the ninth inning. He still hasn't played. Sometimes they'll bring a player in off the bench, and, but he hasn't played yet. And so it gets to the bottom of the ninth, and the Rays are down by one run. There are now two outs in the bottom of the ninth. This is, if you don't know baseball, this is the last chance to score. And by the way, this is every little kid's dream. You're down by one run, there's two outs, and there's a man on base. And this is what the coach does. He calls in Fred McGriff. And I was like, I don't care if he didn't play the first eight innings. Like, this is amazing. Not only is he coming in the game, there are two outs in the bottom of the ninth. He's about to win this game, right? And so he steps up to the plate. And Fred McGriff had this really weird batting stance. If you remember, he used to keep his leg out real far like this. And he's waiting, and it, and it becomes a full count. So if it wasn't, you know, enough of a climax, you know, he, here we go. It's a full count, two outs, bottom of the ninth. And here's what happens, right? He does one of these things. He's, he's ready for the, the ball. It comes right down, um, right over home plate. And, and he does this. Watches it go by him. And the umpire does this. Strike three, right? He's out. So I went from being so excited about what was about to happen to, oh man, <laughs> you know, and I, I remember walking out of the stadium that night with my uncle, just my head down low. And it was like, he didn't even swing. Like he just watched it go right past him. Now I didn't want him to hit a home run. I just wanted him to get on base, you know, help, help the Rays win the game. When it comes to sharing the gospel, sometimes we feel like we have to be the one that hits a home run every time. You know, you gotta be the one that hits all, all the, the runs home and you score all the points. But that's not what God calls us to do. He calls us to put the bat on the ball, to make contact. I grew up playing baseball. My dad would say, just make contact. Get the ball in the field, and we'll see what happens. That's what God's asking of us, that we will be obedient with the opportunities. And the sad thing would be that the opportunities pass right by when the Lord has put them right in front of us. And so Paul was intentional about sharing the gospel. And, and he says, look, I shared it despite some things. So I want you to see just some ways that Paul shared the gospel, starting in verse two. First of all, Paul was risk-taking when it came to sharing the gospel. Verse two says this, but, th but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. 
So they were being persecuted, right? I mean, at this point in Acts 17, when you read the story, Paul is scattering all over the ancient world. I mean, he's being chased out of every city you can imagine. And he ends up in Thessalonica, and it's no different. He's being persecuted for his message. And he says, though we were being treated badly, uh, treated badly uh, the Lord was faithful, and we shared the gospel, despite some really tough circumstances. The reality is this, that no matter where we find ourselves, sharing the gospel will always be a risk, right? I, you know, we could be threatened physically, maybe emotionally, but for, for most of us, it's probably more relationally, right? I mean, you step out and you tell somebody what you're really passionate about and what God's done in your life, and, and, and you are in danger of possibly offending somebody. They might get upset. Now, I'll tell you this, in, in my experience at USF, we haven't had nobody get too upset. In fact, most people are appreciative of the fact that you would share something that's important to you. But there's always a sense of risk when you share the gospel. You've saved for retirement. And somebody comes to you and says, I feel called to the mission field. I'm trying to raise support. Well, that'll cost you something, won't it? You've just become an empty nester. Your kids are gone. You're like, freedom! And then the youth pastor says, do you think you'd be willing to step in and lead a class on Sunday mornings? I gotta go back to hang out with kids again, right? That's a risk. There's time commitments and all of that. I mean, I know here at First Bradenton, there's opportunities to jump in. And all of those, at some level, will require something of you, stepping out of your comfort zone. So I know just recently, y'all split your, your middle school and high school hours. So now they're meeting at different times. You know what that means? They need twice as many volunteers, right? They need people to step in and, and be a part of that and invest their time and their lives in students' lives. I know there's college students that right now meet at Pastor Aaron's house. And eventually, as you reach more students that are in these colleges, they're going to need more homes. That's going to cost you something. There's always a sense of risk when you step out to share the gospel into people's lives. But here's the encouragement with that. The great commission that Jesus gave us to go and make disciples of all nations, it's couched between two promises. The first one is that the Lord tells us that he has all authority. We can trust him. The second one in verse 20 is that he will be with us always. We can be comforted by his presence. So even though there's risk, God is with us. In fact, Paul says in verse 2 that we had boldness, not just that we mustered it up in our own strength, but we had boldness in our God. He was risk-taking, but here's the other thing he was. He was truth-telling. We see this by what he did not do. He was truth-telling by sharing the true gospel. In verse 3, it says this, For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. And then if you go down to verse 5, he says, For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is our witness. He shared the gospel. It's the message that saves. He, he, didn't, he didn't water it down. He, he didn't try to, you know, step around people's feelings and emotions. But, but he shared what was the life-changing message, the gospel. And I heard a quote from Tim Keller who said this. He said, you know, we should share the gospel in such a way that even if somebody doesn't believe it, they should wish that it were true. The gospel is that way, right? That Jesus rose from the dead, that you can have forgiveness for your sins. We were on campus just uh, a few weeks ago, and I was sitting down with a student that has a Muslim background. And so one of the questions that I always ask when I have an opportunity to talk with people uh, about their backgrounds, I just ask this, you know, what's your religious background? 
And that opens up doors of conversation because at that point, they're pretty open about it and you can ask them questions. And so I, I usually ask, well, how do you get saved in your religion? And I said, do you mind if I share with you how you get saved in Christianity? How Jesus saves us? And I, I told him uh, how it works. Now in Islam, it's a matter of weights and counterweights and do your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds? And that's true of most world religions. And, and I said, in Christianity, here's the reality. Our bad weights are always going to outweigh the good things in our lives. But this is what Jesus did for us. Now he didn't receive Christ on the spot. We're still in conversation about things, but I could see it in his face. And he said, I've never heard that before. We have an amazing message. And Paul says, I don't shy away from telling the truth about Jesus. Here's the last thing that Paul was. Not only was he risk-taking and truth-telling, but he was ultimately God-pleasing. He said this in, in verse four. But just as we have been approved by God, that's his source of authority, to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. And then in verse six, he says, nor did we glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. This, this alleviates us from a couple problems. If God is completely in control and God is the one that ultimately we're sharing the gospel for to see people come into relationship with him, we will avoid one of two problems. One, we will avoid being filled with pride. If somebody comes to believe, it wasn't my work, it was God's work. But it'll also save us from frustration Maybe somebody doesn't listen to you. They walk away. But it's God that's doing the work. And so he, he just expects us to put the ball in play and allow him to do the work of saving and, and nurturing a heart and, and cultivating a, a desire for Jesus and, and convicting of sin and all of these things. Let the Spirit work. Paul says, ultimately, we spoke in light of what God was doing. And God is at work all over the place. It's amazing. The more that I live the Christian life, the more I meet people uh, with the intention of cultivating a relationship, it's amazing just the, the initial conversations of things that we have in common, of common backgrounds and all of this. I find myself all the time going, are you serious? Like, you know so-and-so, and you're from, you're from this place, and, and all of this, and, and God is already beginning those relationships before we ever meet each other. God is always, he says, just speak for God, right? Speak the gospel Know the gospel. Be willing to ask questions and see where the conversation leads because if God is already doing something, then he's opening up those doors for you. So we share the gospel. But here's the second thing, and this is the, the only other thing that we find in this passage, and we'll, we'll talk about this a little bit. But not only did Paul share the gospel, but he also shared his life. He shared his life. This is verse eight. This is sort of a theme verse for us at the BCM. We try to operate off of this, but it says this, so ready, being, so ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become so dear to us. It's amazing when you look at the life of Paul, if you walk through the Old Testament, some of his letters, how many times he says something like this. He'll say, follow my example. Or he'll say, imitate me. I mean, that, that's a remarkable thing to say because what he's saying is, look, God's doing a work in my life and if you want to see what it's like to live out your relationship with God, just kind of hang around me and be discipled informally. Most of us in this room can probably think of people that have meant a great deal to us in our walk with Jesus. In fact, as I think back on my life, 
Uh, I gave my life to Jesus when I was 19. I grew up, though, with parents that were Christians, and they were saved in their 20s, so they started bringing us to church, me and my brothers. And I hadn't surrendered my life to Jesus until I was 19, but when I did, I remembered all of the things that my dad was about. My dad used to carry around this tattered Bible that was falling apart, and you know, Charles Spurgeon said that a Bible that's falling apart is usually owned by somebody who's not. And so my, my dad was that way, and, and he would carry this Bible around. I never saw him read it, mostly because my dad woke up at three o'clock in the morning to get to work, and I wasn't willing to make that sacrifice, right? But he would read the Bible in the morning, he'd go to work, and, and, and my dad's a truck driver. He would share the gospel with people that he interacts with at terminals and, 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 and all of this. And, and I just think about the difference that, that that has made in my life. I've learned how to be a father under the banner of Jesus because of my dad. Right? I've learned how to be a husband because of my dad. I learned from a professor who I would go out to eat with, and he would share Jesus with the people that were serving him at the table. And he would, he would say this frequently. He would tell the waitress, he would say, you know, you are most like Jesus in this room right now. And he would always catch them by surprise. Like, what, what do you mean? And he says, well, you're serving. And Jesus was a servant. And so he would, he would start a conversation that way. But I learned that, hey, you can share the gospel with people in all different circumstances from this man. I learned how to be just all about people and, and gentle from my father-in-law, who, who's a pastor sort of south of here, and sort of, it is south of here. I was going to say sort of in the area. It is south of here. But, uh, but a man who just loves his congregation and, and welcomes people in, and he's always outside greeting people and loving on people. And I just learned, like, if you're going to be in leadership and ministry, you got to love people like that. So I can look back on my life, and, and you can look at my journals, and I thank God for his work, but so often it's a person that I mention. I say, God, I'm so thankful that you put me around so-and-so. You can think of people like that, and God has positioned you to be around people to make a difference in their life. In fact, in 1 Timothy 4.16, Paul would say this to a young mentee of his. He would say, be careful about your doctrine and your life. He says, persevere in those things, because by doing so, you will save yourself and those that hear you. In other words, people are watching, right? They're, They're... they're watching the way that you drive when they're in the car with you. They're watching the way that you interact with somebody at the counter, at a restaurant, or, or, or at a store. They're watching the way that you handle your children or your grandchildren. And those things are making a difference in their life. Paul says, not only did I share the gospel, but I shared my life as well. Now, you may say, well, I, I don't know about me. I mean, do you know my life? I don't think you want people around me. Uh, my life's not really the greatest example Well, I would say two things. One, why is that? (laughs) Maybe we need to talk about what are those things that need to change in your life. But everybody's learning from somebody. And you have people around you that God has positioned you around so that you could be effective in pointing people to him. Here's a few things that happened in Thessalonica because of Paul's life and example. In verse seven, I'll go back and read verse seven and then we'll read verse eight again. He says this, but we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, some translations say we cared about you so much, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become so dear to us. He uses the example of a nursing mother. Now, we know what that looks like, that that a mother with a newborn takes care of that child, sacrifices her time, her life, 
you know, it's, it's just all about the baby. My, my wife is sitting over there. We've got a five-week-old in a stroller. She may be holding him. I can't really tell at this point. But, you know, I, I have a living example of that. As I was thinking about this verse this week, you know, I'm thinking about my wife and the way that she sacrifices so much for that child. Right? She, she's literally giving of herself for the betterment of that child, that he would grow and mature. And Paul uses that as the example for his time with the Thessalonians. He says, I cared about you so much, I was like a nursing mother. I gave up my time, my life, my comfort, so that I could come alongside of you. What people saw in Paul was concern, that he cared about them. John Maxwell, a famous writer on leadership, said, nobody cares how much you know until they know how much you care. When we are willing to be there and serve people, it opens up opportunities to share with people what's most important. Not only did they see in Paul that he had concern for them, but they also saw Paul's consistency, that his life matched his message. It says this in verse 9, for you remember, don't you love that he constantly is going back, hey, you remember, right? Remember when I was there? Remember what life was like? Remember what I did? That's, that's pretty cool to be in a position to be able to say that. But he says, for you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed the gospel of God to you. He, he says, look, we, we proclaim the gospel but we also worked right alongside of you so that we wouldn't be a burden to you. We, we relieved pressure on you. We, we helped you. We served you. He says we labored and toiled. This is, this is a risk, right? This isn't easy. But he says I worked hard day and night so that you could see what it looks like to work as a believer. He's telling us something about God, that God cares about our work, that God created work, that God gave us responsibilities. And as such, as in any part of life, we should live it in light of what God's calling us to do. And he, he says, we, we believe that God's doing something through this. The other part of that is Paul saying, I, I wanted to identify with you, right? I didn't just come in, uh, speak over you, uh, you know, just kind of scold you for not believing or whatever the case may be, and then, and then jet out. He said, I was there to invest in you. In fact, many of the places that he would go to, he would spend years with these people. This is, this is a powerful part of discipleship. There are college students that I interact with on a daily basis that want to be mentored by older people. They just say, we want somebody who's lived the life of a believer. That's why I tell our students, some of them haven't yet connected to a local church. Most of them have, but there are some that haven't. And one of the things I tell them is, there is something that you'll get at a local church that you'll never get at this college ministry. You'll see what it's like to live with Jesus as an 80-year-old. You'll see what it's like to be in a family of believers if you didn't have that growing up. So I've told them before, one of the most encouraging things for me is on a Sunday morning when I see uh, one of our older people as a part of our congregation raising their hand in worship. And I go, wow, you know, Christianity isn't just for young people. It's for all of life and into eternity. It makes a difference, right? And so they're looking for people that have consistency, people that believe what they say and they live it out. Paul also showed his character. Look at verse 10. It says, you are witnesses and God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. 
He said, you saw my life, the way that I lived, not only in the, that I worked around you, but also my personal conduct. In other words, I didn't just work hard and you know, hit myself uh, with the hammer and start cursing. No, 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 you saw the holiness and the righteousness and my blamelessness as I worked alongside of you. You saw my character. You saw the way that it unfolded. You saw the way that my faith made a difference in my life. Now, here's the thing about that. You may say, well, I'm not really in a position where I can model holiness and righteousness and blamelessness before others, but all three of those words are used in the New Testament to declare a reality about those that have a relationship with Jesus. In other words, if you have trusted Jesus as your Savior and received his forgiveness and his love and you have the hope of eternal life, he has already declared you to be holy and righteous and blameless. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, it says that you are a holy nation. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, he says that he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, it says, he who called you is faithful and he will keep you blameless until the end. In other words, God has already declared these things to be true about you. He's doing a work in your life. Our responsibility is to lean into those realities. So the change process in the Christian life, if you're struggling with that, it's not that you have to become something to be approved by God, but if you have a relationship with Jesus, you've been approved, therefore live into what he's declared to be true about you. And this is where there is joy and fruit when we abide in Christ. There was something about his character. And then finally, we see his counsel. He was given an opportunity to speak into them. He compared himself to a mother in verse seven. In verse 11, he compares himself to a father. He says, for you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you to char and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. You notice that one came last, by the way. He talked about his character. He talked about his convictions and his consistency. And then the last thing he mentions is, you gave me the opportunity to speak into your life. It was because of all of those other things, he had the chance to speak what was really important, how to live the Christian life. At this point, these people had trusted in Jesus. And so he proclaimed the gospel. They gave their lives to Jesus. And he said, now I am like a father to you. And I can speak to you about the things that really matter. There are people all around us that need us. And God's put us in places to minister to them. And again, the things that matter most are the things that you might not even be aware of. I was reminded of that this week. One of our college students told me about the church that she grew up in. And I said, no way, I've done a couple of discipleship weekends there. I was one of the leaders and just stayed in the home with the kids. I had middle school boys both times, which like is probably the craziest group that you would have for one of these weekends, right? And they're fighting the whole time and we had gotten in trouble by the host parents. So that happens. I told you it was a risk. And well, we were having a time after the first year of praying. And we just kind of asked what we could be praying for other people about. And one of the boys who didn't grow up in a Christian home said, would you guys pray for my dad? He's not a believer. Would you pray that my dad would come to faith in Jesus? And so we prayed and we prayed for other things. Well, we left that weekend and it's hard to keep up with a middle schooler and, and all that's going on, especially before the vast amount of social media and all that. And so I really hadn't heard back from him. But the next year, I was invited back to be a leader again. This time, I was with a different group. 
And this boy from across the church parking lot runs towards me. And he says, Nathan, guess what? And I'm like, what? what's going on, man? What happened? And he says, my dad prayed to receive Christ this year. My dad's a believer. Now, I had no idea. I may not have been in a position to, to help with them again the next year. I, I may have missed out on that. But God was doing a work. And it was, it was just praying together. And God did something in his life that has changed his dad for eternity. And now his dad, I, I don't know where he's at, but he's investing in other people that are going to change for eternity. There are people all around us, and, and I would say especially young people. Out of the million or so college students in the state of Florida, they estimate that 95% of them don't know Jesus as their Savior. That is over 900,000 students. And I would say at USF, that is probably true. Now, you may have more that say they belong to a church, or, but when you engage in conversations, you realize that there are so many who need Jesus, no matter their background. And I believe that God has positioned all of us to encourage people through the gospel and to model the gospel through our lives. As we close, I, I, I want to just pray for us. I would encourage you to do this. If there's somebody in your heart that maybe the Lord has, has laid on, on your mind and in your heart, and, and you would say, you know, I just really want to pray about that relationship. That as we sing a last song, that you just pray for that person.